So Dan, there were storms on the weekend. We all know that. I think that's probably enough said about that. The other thing, maybe more interesting, that happened this weekend is the Winter Olympics ended. How have you enjoyed watching it? I have enjoyed watching it. I actually really enjoyed it. I mean, I probably shouldn't admit this, but I felt like every time you turned on the coverage on the BBC for the entire two weeks, it was it was curling. And I must admit, mm. I was starting to sort of have my heads in my hands like, God, not curling again. And then, of course, by the end, it's <laughs> yeah. like, actually turns out we're awesome at it. And I was a bit like, wish I'd paid more attention, actually followed that along a bit better. <laughs> Mr. Trick there, Mr. Trick. Yeah, I think for me, the bits that I probably enjoyed the most. So first of all, I really enjoyed the, um, I'm going to forget the name for it now, the snowboarder on their own going down the hill doing lots of jumps. Slope style. Slope style. That I really enjoyed. And it's amazingly nail-biting stuff, like when you watch it and there's, there's so little between them. So that was that was great. And then I, I thought that was impressive enough. Then you start watching the skiers doing the same thing. And at least on a snowboard, because people ride different ways around, it never quite looks like they're going backwards, even though probably for them, it, well, it will feel like that. For skiers, they literally land facing backwards, which just blows my mind. And the guy that, was it the guy that won it that did the funky going around in one direction, landing, facing the other way. Incredible movement just in the air. Yeah, he was like, I'm spinning one direction. Now I'm going to spin the other yeah. way somehow. Like it, it was a kind of defied the laws of physics. And yeah, that was kind of cool. Just mind blowing. If people haven't seen that, I recommend you watch that video because it's insane. So my favorite was the snowboard across where you've got the four athletes that go oh, together. Yeah. It feels like a computer game. It, it, what's amazing about it is the people who were in fourth, they could really catch up because you drafted and no one was ever out of it because they could come back mm. at the last minute and snatch it and they could you could fall over. You could be miles ahead and fall over. It was That was pretty, pretty nail-biting stuff. Quite scrappy, isn't it? That one? Yeah, really pretty, pretty scrappy. The, yeah, was, yeah. They, they did a mixed relay of it as well, which is also pretty cool. Um, one man, one woman from each country. Oh, that was pretty nice. Um, but my, my favorite athlete, the Winter Olympics, has to be um, Esther Ledesca, which obviously is just an awesome name Fantastic to start with. Fantastic name. But yeah. um, I don't know if you remember that name. She won, Back in 2018 in um, Pyeongchang, she won snowboarding and skiing gold medals. That's just mental, which isn't is pretty it? pretty crazy, to be that yeah. good at both of the things. Yeah. So she was trying to defend both and she won the snowboarding. It was the parallel slalom she won. Um, she didn't win skiing, right. but that was, I thought that was a pretty cool story. Yeah. I mean, how do you how do you train for that? You wake up in the morning, you're like, which one do I train? Like, how do you prioritize? They're so, I guess, I mean, there's there are clearly similarities, but technique must be pretty different skiing versus snowboarding yeah i, th I think it is they, they were talking a little bit about it that she does say that she does feel that um they complement each other a little bit and she learns stuff from one that helps her on the other but to try and run two like top level program training programs for that is yeah. pretty that's pretty crazy but um wow. yeah, it's all cool stuff super impressive right so this is the long-awaited book club episode the book club Probably episode should just get to it let's do it Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. This week, we have a book club episode. Been really looking forward to this since I read this book back at Christmas. So we're delighted to be joined by the FT's global finance correspondent and author of the book Trillions, Robin Wigglesworth. Robin, welcome. Hi, Dan. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Hi, Robin. Welcome to the show. 
Before we start talking about the book, which we're very keen to get stuck into, I think it'd be helpful if you give the listeners a sense of your role, I guess your background in terms of your role at the FT, but also background in terms of being the author of this particular book. Thanks, Mary. It's a long and winding road like most journalistic careers. So I'm the global finance correspondent at the FT, which is a grandiose but fairly generic title that just means I cover macroeconomics, finance, investing and markets across the world. And the plan was I do it from Oslo, Norway, because I'm actually from here and I wanted the kids to grow up close to their grandparents. But the plan was to be a roaming correspondent until basically COVID came and killed that off completely. So I've been essentially isolated in my basement office for the past few years because of that. Thank you to that pangolin. <laughs> I basically cover broad things. I write a lot of columns, bigger pieces. I mean, whenever there's like something like stocks go up, stocks go down, I tend not to do those kind of stories. It's more I love those kind of stories. going on. I mean, they're bread and butter journalism. Everybody in journalism and everybody who reads them hates them as well or likes mocking us for them. But they are the best read pieces. But I try to do maybe the non-obvious things, the stuff that really people should know, both the insiders in the finance industry, but quite often as well, stuff that people outside the finance industry, because the FT has a lot of general readers as well, really should know about to kind of understand what's really going on under the hood of these sort of uh, tempestuous financial system. So does that mean you do a little bit more kind of do lots of research and unearth a topic versus quick reaction? overnight article type stuff sometimes there will be a quick reaction just because something really crazy has happened and they'll ask me to write this about instant insight or instant column or something like that and the good thing is because i've spent quite a few years doing this now i can do that fairly quickly but yeah i'd say so 78 percent of my job is still talking to a lot of people far more brilliant than i am and sort of synthesizing what they say and trying to get a sense of how things are really working and also maybe sometimes, and this is my favorite because I do love a pop cultural reference, try to make it interesting for our general reader. Because I think this stuff is important, but a lot of people glaze over if you start talking about economics and finance. So I do try occasionally to kind of make it actually more interesting to my own family, essentially. That's the litmus test I use. Will they nice. basically shut me up over the dinner? <laughs> about this? I, for one, love a little bit of an investigative journalism. I can see how time-consuming that must all be. I know your columns are very well regarded by sort of insiders in the industry. A lot of people might not necessarily always admit it or share it, but I know that insiders certainly like and respect what you have to say most of the time. Well, that's good to know. Mostly you get hate mail rather than love mail. So, But occasionally I do <laughs> get like a nice email saying, actually, that was not the dumbest thing you've ever written. And I do that. <laughs> you take it. You take it when that comes. Exactly. Robin, we're going to get on talking about the book pretty soon. But first of all, why don't you just let us know one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? I think the fact that I grew up in Oslo, Norway, not everybody knows that with a name like Wigglesworth. So I'm bilingual in Norwegian and that's where we live now. I was very briefly a war correspondent for the FT. I joined the FT wow. as a Middle East correspondent, and that was mostly covering the Gulf and it was a post-financial crisis. So it was a very finance and economics job. But during the Arab Spring, I got to spread my wings a little bit. And it's horrific, but it's also fantastically exciting. So I got to spend time in Bahrain, but also Benghazi during the Civil War with a began and body armor and the whole jazz. So that was interesting. I actually did my job interview for the Financial Times markets correspondent from an army barracks in rebel-held Benghazi, outside rebel-held Benghazi. Not the optimal situation to do it in, but luckily they gave me the job anyway. That'll put markets into perspective, I bet, that sort of stuff. Yeah. 
and the working from your basement for the last two years yes too. having sat there on the perch on a balcony in Benghazi like the, the hotel that most of the journalists said and tried to adjust this satellite so you can get an internet connection which is unbelievably slow it's got all <laughs> dial-up speeds and then you write an article and then the computer crashes so you have to start again so yes as much as i complain about my office existence now my home office existence it's a lot better than being a war correspondent so robin we heard about your role of course at the ft but let's start talking about the book now so the book is trillions is it the first book you've written or is this one of a series of books that you've written? Well, no, it's definitely the first book I've written. Whether it'll be a series depends entirely on like whether the publishers like the sales numbers enough. But luckily, it's been well received enough that I can dream of being able to write another book. Fingers crossed. Fantastic. Maybe at the end, we'll ask you what your next idea is for a book. But why this book and what made you write it sort of now-ish? Well, it's a lot about, it came out of my job at the Financial Times, where essentially we don't have the staffing of some of the giant US newspapers like Wall Street Journal or the news one like Bloomberg News and Reuters. So we have to be more strategic in what we cover and how we cover and when we cover it. So you're always kind of looking out for, you have to cover the big stuff that everybody cares about. But then you try and find areas where you can add value, where you feel it's either being undercovered or uncovered or badly covered. And for me, a lot of the finance journalism can sometimes be a little bit like celebrity journalism. That world has its own celebs as well, and you care a lot more about them. But passive investing in index funds, funds that just basically track a stock exchange, are inherently boring. There is no human fund manager. There's no woman or man standing there that you can interview about what they think about Russia and Ukraine and things like that. So they don't get that well covered. But for me, when I looked at the size of this thing, it was just staggering. And the growth rate the example I often use is when I started researching for the magazine piece that became the book in 2018, we cost $10 trillion of assets under management in all index funds. By the time I started writing, researching the book in 2019, we were at 13, 14 trillion. By the time I started writing it in 2020, we were at 16 trillion. By the time like the edits were done for the book, it was 17, 18 trillion. And now the book has been out for a few months. It's $20 trillion. So just since 2018, it's gone from 10 to $20 trillion. And there's very little that shows that this is slowing down. So I just felt it was just an enormously important subject to cover. And when the more I kind of scratched around in the backstory, I just realized there were really interesting people as well. And for me, that's the perfect combination, important story and good story together. That's kind of a slam dunk. Going a bit undercovered as well, I suppose you're saying. People aren't writing about this because like you say, quite frankly, a lot of the time it's boring or you have to work hard to find the exciting bits. And finding almost what I often call the narrative glue. This is something that I've talked to lots of authors before, because being a journalist is a radically different skill set. Lots of authors would make terrible journalists. And sadly, a lot of journalists make terrible authors. It's a different skill set. So I talked to lots of people to get an understanding. The hardest part was getting the narrative to glide between different groups, because obviously my book spans 100 years of investment history. And some parts are well known, like Jack Bogle, so it's finding the untold story of Jack Bogle or how that links to chapter three on the intellectual forefathers, the pioneers that kind of came up with the idea. And then also to the present day, like, how does this matter to us? But that was fun. It was a lot of fun to do. In your narrative just there, you mentioned you were originally writing a magazine article. Did you then just realize this was just so big that it was not an article, it was a book? Is that how it happened? It's slightly how the sausage gets made and all writers have different sort of processes. I tend to write too long 
and then cut back, cut back, cut back until what I'm left with is hopefully something lean and mean. But when I started cutting back my 8,000 word draft for the magazine piece, I thought this is actually pretty good. It's hard to cut this. As it happened, an agent in the US who had been reading my stuff at the Financial Times at exactly that time emailed me and said, hey, I think you should write a book about passive investing. And I said, well, as it happens, I literally be sitting on this manuscript that I have to cut down to a magazine piece, which I did. It ran as Passive Attack in the FT weekend edition. And I just basically took the long draft, added that in the chapter outline, and she shopped it around. And luckily, several publishers were interested. I didn't quite realize how lucky I was at the time, having heard other people go through the process of agents and publishers and how tricky that can be. So touch wood, my first trial was blissfully easy. It's funny, isn't it? Because you read a lot of books and it's often said that a lot of books should have been a magazine article, whereas this one <laughs> kind of gone the other way, I guess. I don't think there's any way you could accuse this book of that, just because like you say, the period of time it spans, the number of different interlocking stories that you need to bring together to make it all work. It's a book. It's screaming that this needs to be a book. And I was really interested because my interpretation of the way I took the book in, if you like, is that it was effectively a collection of short stories, except they all wove together by the end of it. So you'd sort of think you were done with a character. And then in another story, suddenly you see that name come up again and you think, oh, OK, right. So as you said, chapter three, OK, right. So now I'm seeing how this all slots together. A lot of the narrative happened in the US. And I assume that's just because that's where a lot of this was happening. It's not that you were focusing on the US version of the story. Actually, it's that that's where the big progression was being made. Yes. I mean, so I, I've heard some UK contacts of mine, I think it was Elroy Dimson at LBS, who was quite huffy about me sort of neglecting the international story. And to be fair, yes, I mean, there is a mix of, I just needed to keep what was threatened to be a cast of thousands to a cast of hundreds. And also, in reality, if you look at the major milestones in the history of indexing, they were all the US. These were US academics that did the seminal work the US pioneers, and most of the big passive giants are US, with the notable exception, though only because of an acquisition of Barclays Global Investors, which was the asset management of Barclays. And they actually bought the pioneering unit of Wells Fargo that did this, that later became the crown jewel in BlackRock, the world's biggest asset manager. Mm. So it was nice being able to thread that together. If I was going to do an updated and extended version, you know, like a director's cut, as it were, I think more international, probably more on the history of indices themselves. They kind of seem really boring to a lot of people, but they're actually kind of foundational, obviously, to the whole idea of index funds. And there are all sorts of issues around them. I think it's fascinating. How that industry has morphed from being a dull backwater where nobody wanted to work. I mean, this was like the crap jobs at the Financial Times was helping compile the FTSE indices. Nobody wanted to do that. To being having profit margins that would like Google and Facebook would envy. I mean, the profit margins in indexing are just insane. And also bonds. My first job as a financial correspondent really was as a covering of the bond market. And I think the growth of passive bond funds as well is something I explore a little bit in the book, but maybe arguably might even have justified the tight chapter by itself. So yeah, a bit more international. Might justify a whole book. Yeah, exactly. Maybe that'll be a <laughs> book to follow up. You talked a little bit about the writing process already in terms of the interviews you did. Were there any particular challenges or surprises that stick out to you from that process? People that were particularly eager and interesting to talk to you, people that were hard to talk to, that sort of stuff? 
I think most people are actually kind humans and they're helpful and they're nice. And as long as you don't waste their time, then they'll always try to help. That was my favorite part of the book, talking to all these people. I love hearing stories. Some of the early pioneers, some of them sadly have passed away or passed away just before or in the process of writing the book. But I got to speak to a lot of them, including Jack Bogle before he passed away. The interviews, that was the fun part. That's still my favorite part of being a journalist, really. I get to talk to wildly interesting, smart people all day long and hopefully learn something from them. In some cases, they were telling you about stories that happened way back in the 1970s. If you go back to the Wells Fargo piece, that was the sort of genesis of a lot of this. That's some real history there. I went back, I mean, I won't go back 100 years, but I don't have any eyewitness accounts for Louis Bacalier's PhD thesis. It is a challenge that obviously people's memories fade And we all tend to see ourselves as the hero in our own story. So there are parts where it was hard to reconcile different narratives. And for the most part, I either talked to a lot of people around that to kind of get what I thought was the truest truth. And in some cases where literally people just remembered events very differently, I tried to say, look, people disagree on this. Here's what this person said or something like that. But I tried to do it in a graceful way. So... Some people like the sausage making of writing a narrative. In practice, it's deathly boring for most people. You don't want the director jumping in halfway through a film telling you how they decided to light a stage, essentially, right? That's how I approached it. That was tricky. That some of this stuff is still entirely oral memory and people disagree on certain things. You did mention, though, that there was real books there. I think you said that BlackRock and Vanguard, was it Vanguard, both have like a corporate history manual thing that you got access to? Vanguard was on one hand the easiest because obviously Jack Bogle was a hugely prolific and a very elegant writer in his own right or had also given God knows how many interviews over his lifetime. He was very press friendly. There the challenge is that I don't like throwing him under the bus posthumously, especially because Jack Bogle was as great a person as everybody says. But there was a gap between the reality of Jack Bogle and the legend of Jack Bogle. And in his latter years, I felt he probably spent more time polishing the latter when I think a more nuanced picture, I think, makes people more human and more realistic and real to me. So there the challenge was just talking to people at work with him. It's like, where does Jack's account differ from what you remember? And there were quite a lot of things, but even the people that sparred with him respect immensely. With BlackRock and Dimensional, these were more bare bones corporate histories that are done almost like as an internal junket thing that may be given to a few senior executives. The Dimensional one was actually pretty good in that it was clearly written by somebody who had experience of writing something interesting. Because a lot of corporate histories are as irredeemably boring as they sound. But both the BlackRock one and the Dimensional one were very helpful. But a lot of other parts you had to kind of piece together through several hundred interviews, I think I did, must be, over 2019, 2020. Are there any pieces of the full story that you're still, despite hundreds of interviews and lots of reading, you're still not quite clear on exactly what kind of happened and it sort of bothers you in a sense? Well, it doesn't bother me, but I'm still intrigued by the falling out between Jack Brennan and Jack Bogle. Because they are arguably, without Jack Brennan or Jack Bogle, you wouldn't have a vanguard and you wouldn't have pass investing to be as, as huge as it is today. And they were incredibly close. They were very different people. Brennan was Bogle's protege, this young patrician Bostonian, but who came from very like humble roots, Irish immigrants that worked themselves up. They worked incredibly well. They were the yin to each other's yang until there was this epic, dramatic falling out. And even best friends of them still don't know really what happened. 
both of them always refuse to talk about it. Jack Brennan has always been incredibly discreet, just as a matter of nature. Jack Bogle was less discreet, but this is the one thing he just would never talk about. And I think that's quite sad because I think Jack Bogle's legacy wouldn't have been the same without Jack Brennan continuing it. Vanguard would not be what it is today without Jack Brennan. So I thought that was, I would have loved just for my own curiosity to have unpicked that a little bit. But at some point it starts getting almost sort of voyeuristic. You kind of want to find out what two friends fell out over. But it was so painful. And it was such a big deal for Vanguard. It's still a schism that you kind of, you can say, kind of reverberates today. That I think I'd love to have understood a little bit more, even if it's just for my own sake, really. Was that the story whereby Jack Bogle had a period of ill health and stepped to the side? Jack Brennan was in charge and then Jack Bogle was ready to come back. And that was where that awkwardness all started. Then he sort of went sideways into a more of a bigger picture role and never quite came to terms with it sort of thing. Yeah, that's exactly it. So Jack Bogle, despite being strong as an ox, had an incredibly weak heart. I mean, he suffered his first heart attack. I can't remember, it was like late 20s, early 30s. He had a congenital heart problem and he had many heart attacks. And by the end of his reign as CEO and chairman of Vanguard, and Jack Brennan was kind of a COO and heir apparent, Bogle was on Beth's door. So he finally got signed over. They announced Jack Bogle would be the new CEO. And he kind of, tried to be chairman, went into hospital to wait for transplant, heart transplant. And he waited for a long time because when you're that age, you're not probably first in line. But he finally got one. And it was miraculously successful. It didn't just save his life, but it kind of shaved 20 years off. And he was back to the incredibly ferociously driven Jack Bogle who founded Vanguard. So he came back, but he'd been kind of gone, like basically hadn't been running the place for a long time, came back and expecting as the founder of the place, obviously I'm going to pick up the reins again, or I'm going to be the executive chairman. Brennan is still like, he's a CEO, we can say CEO, but I'm the man, I'm Jack Bogle. And I think a lot of people even friends of Jack Bogle said, look, Brennan was the better manager. He was the guy that kept the trains going on time. He made Vanguard what it is today. The board also felt that Brennan was the person to lead Vanguard in its next iteration. So on one hand, it's a fairly familiar tale of people falling out, but it does seem to be something that made it even more toxic than just Jack Bogle trying to seize the reins back and Brennan not relinquishing them. There's something else that seemed to have happened that turned that just really, really nasty and pained both of them to their dying days. I mean, Jack Bogle famously made up with the people that had sacked him at Wellington, which forced him to found Vanguard before he passed away because he was very inspired by, I think it was Hamilton making up with Adam Burr or John Burr or something. I can't remember the name of it, his nemesis in US politics. But he never made up with Brennan. Even as he was going to the hospital and was dying and knew he was dying, he refused to make up with Brennan. And I think that's just very sad. As you say, it points to more going on, doesn't it? Because the story, as you've just told it, why would they then be so closed about what happened? Because that's a relatively easy story to tell, even if you're very angry about it. It's not so personal. But they had a kind of a father-son relationship. And I think it was just very personal and quite sad. And when you talk to people at Vanguard to this day that know both of them, they still think that's one of the saddest things that happened in their time there. So should we move to a maybe slightly more positive <laughs> note? So that was the area that sort of you hadn't necessarily unpicked the full story. I guess there's sort of two questions here. What's your favourite part of this whole narrative? But also, if it's different, what was the favourite bit to write about? 
just writing a book, I was very wary of when journalists write books, they tend to be a collection of long magazine pieces that don't have like a narrative that runs through them. I loved it when I rediscovered a character that propped up later on. So a classic case is David Booth, who was a very young University of Chicago graduate who worked on the first index funds at Wells Fargo in the early 70s. He later crops up as the founder of something called Dimensional Fund Advisors. And a lot of the people, and he also, again, his mentor was the economics professor, Gene Farmer, who we also was foundational for the intellectual foundation stones for indexing. So I quite like that you notice these characters cropping up. And I love the fact that Wells Fargo, where the index funds were born, we revisit them later further down because now they're kind of struggling. They're almost dying. And then they have a new CEO called Fred Grau, who really kind of turns them around and turns them into and organizes a sale to Barclays Global Investors and makes them one of the biggest asset managers on the planet and also manages to essentially kind of steal State Street's lunch money. So State Street was its big rival and invented exchange-traded funds, but BGI just did them better and more aggressively. And that then that was sold to BlackRock, which, as we know, is the world's biggest ass manager, thanks to BGI. So that I like. But from just a writing perspective, I love the history. And I have a real soft spot for people that die unknown, that nobody really knows them, or they were never recognized in their own lifetimes. I mean, they're all quite sad and bittersweet stories. But Louis Bacalier, I think, is that classic example of that. This was somebody that had studied in the Sorbonne, but because of family tragedy, couldn't afford to pay his own way through the Sorbonne mathematics. So he worked at the French Stock Exchange. He didn't get a great grade in his PhD because he wrote about finance, which was considered grubby in France at the time. And then he basically bounced around lots of different professorships until he died and nobody really knew who he was. Apart from some people who worked in probability mathematics in France and Europe. But a lot of his work, he did some foundational mathematics before Albert Einstein did it. And his PhD thesis, it's the genesis moment for what was later known as the random walk theory or efficient markets theory. It starts with Louis Bacalier, and he is today considered the father of all financial economics. So this was not a deal back in the day. And I love the story of him, even though there aren't that many sources about his life, because he was just not that well known. I was going to say, I mean, that's a huge field today, isn't it? It's a legitimate academic field all by itself, which didn't exist then. And he's definitely one of those people that was at least, what, 50 years before his time, probably maybe slightly more than that, if anything. But great story. And the Brownian motion random walk stuff is still so relevant, isn't it? His PhD thesis is incredibly obtuse, unless you have a PhD in mathematics. But like he makes some observations that we now take completely for granted. But at the time, it was kind of groundbreaking. It was a huge moment for economics. Like Paul Samuelson, first American to win the Nobel Prize, and people still read his textbooks in economics today. He was a huge fan of Bacalier, but he was only discovered two, three decades after his death, really. I wanted to talk about personalities a little bit. We've mentioned it a few times already. You mentioned the yin-yang with Brennan and Bogle. It comes up in so many times in the book, obviously. And I suppose as a reader, you can understand why that as an author, that's, I suppose, what you're searching for is the personalities to make it real. I felt there was a bit more than that. It seemed like you felt that it was so essential to the whole story, how these personalities had gelled. And I'm thinking in particular, that combination of personalities you had at Wells Fargo, you mentioned Grauer, the difference that he made, the fact that you had these kind of yin-yang combinations, which it felt like you were looking for those a little bit, was quite important to the whole thing. Is that fair, do you think? 
Well, not necessarily the yin and yang relationships, but certainly people. I'd love to, well, actually, even I find pure financial writing sometimes a little bit turgid, but we fundamentally, we're humans thinking narratives and we care about people and people do matter. The index fund would have been invented without a Mac McQuown or Jack Bogle. All these ideas would have happened at some point. Maybe they arguably should have happened but even before them. But I think people do matter. They can alter the course of history. I don't think BlackRock would today be what it is if Fred Grauer hadn't taken over a bleeding and nearly comatose Wells Fargo Investment Advisors in the early 80s. So I think that matters. The people matter. One thing I did find interesting was there are obviously relationships that certain people's conflicts actually lead to destructive creation internally, like the, the Wells Fargo people famously yelled so much at each other that the walls of the building would rattle. <laughs> but I think it's more that quite a lot of these people that are very successful, and I noticed this in a lot of my generals of FT interviews as well, they've suffered some sort of horrific personal or professional setback in their lives. And that is what has kind of driven them. So Jack Bogle had, for example, a very troubled childhood. He came from wealth, but the family lost all the money in the Great Depression. His father became an alcoholic, and they could only afford to send one of the three sons to university. And Bogle's grades were the best, so he was the only one they could send. And just imagine what that does to you, the pressure that puts on you. So he had this huge drive anyway. And then he was the wonder boy of the investment industry, but then he gets sacked by his partners because he's so driven. And then it takes his drive up 27 notches and he founds Vanguard and decides he's going to turn Vanguard into like a vehicle for his revenge against people who backed him. And he would never have articulated it that way. But you can see Vanguard as a big, massive two fingers up to the people that sacked him at Wellington in the early 70s. I hadn't known the origin of the name Vanguard, and I loved that story. So it was the name of the warship, is that right? Yeah, that's right. He wanted to name his new firm something related to Wellington and was told he wasn't allowed to, which in this day and age seems kind of fair enough. But the fact that he then went for the warship and it was sort of like, oh, actually, he's got quite grand plans for this firm. I thought that was a fantastic story. This is one of my favourite little tidbits as well. He later on, it's in the book, though, I didn't actually include a picture of the mural, but when Vanguard was quite triumphant, they moved into new headquarters as of Pennsylvania, and he commissioned this five-part mural showing the Battle of the Nile with HMS Vanguard. But in that mural, the French flagship that HMS Vanguard was bombarding was not the historically accurate La Spartiale, but it was La Fidelité, which was, again, a two fingers up to Ned Johnson, the patriarch of fidelity, who had famously kind of basically criticized Bogle when Vanguard had launched. I watched, like many people during lockdown, the documentary on the Chicago Bulls, The Last Dance, and like how Michael Jordan would use some imagined slight as fuel for his drive. Essentially, he would just decide that somebody deserved to basically get killed on the floor, and he would just decide he'd just humiliate them. But he'd try to find that. And I think a lot of these people have that somehow. They find something that needs to motivate them. And I think Bogle, it was being sacked by Wellington and being slighted by Ned Johnson at Fidelity. On Vanguard, on that Vanguard founding piece, because the really key bit about Vanguard, of course, is the ownership structure, isn't it? So it's mutual. So it's owned by the investors in the funds rather than by a group of shareholders. And I suppose that one single insight, one single choice, which is pretty much almost unique, you don't see that very often in the fund management industry, that one single insight has obviously saved billions of pounds 
for the end investors. But it's quite a radical thing at the time, I suppose, a huge forking of history, I guess, at that point in time. And it was kind of a happenstance. And I think this is one of those areas where we need to maybe kind of scratch under the surface of the legend of St. Jack and the reality that he always said, like, we love the idea of indexing and his bachelor's thesis at Princeton talked about how people can't beat the market average and things like that. It's essentially hogwash. The reason why Vanguard is owned by its own funds, though, to be fair, Jack Bogle had occasionally discussed this pre the divorce with Wellington or before even getting sacked by Wellington, where he was the CEO. But I suspect the reason why he talked about mutualization there was, again, it's a power battle with his partners that he brought in through a merger. They wanted him out. He wanted them out. And one way to do that would be to mutualize. When he did finally get sacked, this was his Hail Mary to keep some sort of a job. So he went to the boards of the individual funds because the funds have a separate independent board and said, look, you guys don't need to sack me. This is just Wellington, the management company. And in the end, they set up an administrative outfit that would be owned by the funds that was giving the grandiose name of Vanguard. And then they started an index fund, not because Jack Bogle was a big fan of index funds, but purely because the divorce agreement with Wellington precluded them from doing any investment management. And Bogle's slightly cheeky argument to the board was, well, an index fund is not actually managed. It's unmanaged. That's fine. And the board outrageously said, yeah, sure, go ahead. And Wellington never thought this would be a big thing. They said, yeah, Jack Bogle, go do your little index fund thing. But he didn't really care about indexing that much. It was a gambit in his ongoing battle with his former partners at Wellington. And it wasn't until really the 80s and really the 90s where you kind of, holy crap, this is quite a good thing. And we have basically a monopoly because nobody else wants to potentially cannibalize their own business. So that's when they really started building up passive. Vanguard today still is one of the biggest active managers on the planet. They still manages well north of a trillion Close to $2 trillion, I think, in active funds. I'm not that surprised given I've read the book, but listeners might be surprised that we've got to this stage in the episode and we've not really talked about passive investing itself. So perhaps we'll cover that briefly. But it's great that what we've done actually for the process so far, we've obviously talked about your writing process, but we've just talked about people and characters. And as you say, they're so central to it. And really, when I read the book, that's what brought the whole thing to life. It didn't feel like you're reading about bog standard, boring, default, passive investing. It felt like you're reading stories about people's lives. And I'm aware different people read books in different ways. The way I read a book is I see a film in my mind. So I'm constantly sort of trying to read it in a way that I can visualize what people are doing and where they're going and that sort of thing. And I know, Dan, you've got a couple of questions for Robin in terms of if the book became a film. I want to know who's playing Jack Bogle, do you reckon? I've got some ideas, by the way, but who do you think? Ooh, that's a tough one. I mean, I wouldn't want to be an actor to portray Jack Bogle. He was really, even his voice was incredible. I mean, beyond Morgan Friedman-like, it just boomed. Even people at Vanguard call it the voice of God when he called you up to yell at you occasionally. <laughs> I don't know. Who do you think, that? I haven't spoken to him, unfortunately. I never spoke to him. I can't attest to the voice. I suppose you're torn between the two aspects of his character as a serious point that it's not the kind of just the benevolent kind of nice grandfatherly character that doesn't quite seem right. It's not the kind of ultra irascible character. So for example, someone like a Robert De Niro feels like maybe it's going a little bit too far down that road. But so the three I've got, I reckon James Cromwell, he plays the grandfather in Succession. He was also in iRobot. Maybe he's a little bit too down the grandfatherly character. Liam Neeson or Ian McKellen, Lord of the Rings kind of. So they're all kind of representing, I suppose, the 
later, later in his career, Jack Bogle, I guess, is what I'm thinking there, which for rightly or wrongly is how I had him in my head, I suppose, during the thing. But maybe I'm just yeah, focusing too much on great. the screen. I mean, I think they all look incredibly accomplished character actors. I think that's what you want because I think Jack Bogle was more multifaceted and multidimensional than most people, including him, would occasionally portray himself as. I think they all do a great job. Now I'm starting to think of who else might play different characters and I'm struggling. It is funny, I suppose, because when I was trying to think of who might play Jack Bogle, I was picturing an earlier stage in his lifetime. And I was almost picturing like a Leo DiCaprio because he can play a sort of serious and the sort of character that might f- suddenly flip, if you like. And I guess I'm probably remembering Leonardo DiCaprio being slightly younger than he is now, but I was picturing that being at an earlier stage. And of course, if you were going to make a film of this book, you would need multiple actors for characters that sit through generations. Exactly. Which is why I was thinking the Robert De Niro thing. I'm trying to think of actors that have successfully done that sort of through their career kind of thing. Actually, the other good point to make actually here is the way you presented so many of these personalities was that they were renegades. They were unorthodox kind of things. And I guess that's so important if we're thinking seriously about what the film seems like. How would you reflect on the role of renegades in this story? No, so the renegades was something that it was Rex Sinkfield who did one of the first index funds and then later co-founded the FA called himself. He also said it was like being John the Baptist and trying to convert the heathens in the early years as well, which I thought was quite a cultural <laughs> way of portraying it. I mean, sadly, it's a little bit of a cliche, but like whenever you want to disrupt an industry or a business, the conformist insiders don't tend to do it. You do need the Steve Jobs as people, the people that have a mix of insane self-belief and incredible drive. And I think people like John, I mean, not all of them, Bogle clearly had drive. John McQuown, Mac, who did the first index funds at Wells Fargo, he's one of those people that still to this day in his late 80s radiates drive. He still runs a vineyard in Sonoma in California. And you need those kind of people that just really don't care what people think about them, essentially, or actually positively delight in tweaking their noses. <laughs> So, for example, Dean LeBaron, another one of the, my favorite characters in the book, he was not per se like somebody who wanted to kind of humiliate everybody else. He was more of a kind of a charismatic renegade, like a kind of a Robin Hood character that for him, he didn't think Marcus were efficient. He was an active manager. He just thought, well, the theory behind all this is kind of cool and it makes sense. And frankly, what a lot of people ask me for, are basically a portfolio of big, boring US stocks, the entire market that they don't trade that much was kind of an index fund. And he loved the idea that he'd kind of tweak the noses of the industry. So he did it mm-hmm. just to provoke them. And later on, he just shut down because he got bored with index funds. He never developed a battery much, never became, it became a really big asset manager in its own right and was bought by somebody else later on. But it never became yeah, Wells Fargo or BGI and BlackRock or State Street that invented ETFs. So I think a lot of these people were essentially to varying degrees of bellicosity or iconoclast, they're all outsiders, essentially. And there's no coincidence, most of the people that are played a major role in this either spent large parts of their career outside the finance industry or worked outside of London and New York, essentially. They worked in the backwaters of finance. They were not called insiders. I love the word iconoclastic. Any excuse to bring that word up in a conversation, <laughs> I do it every time. Iconoclasts, love them. Oh, see, I said my favourite word is hippopotamus, but it's not very often <laughs> I get to use it. <laughs> as we're sort of winding up now what's the one thing you'd like listeners to take away from the book 
Well, I did write, obviously, this is a very affectionate history of the index fund or passive investing and how it's invented, why it was invented, how it's grown, and what the implications are. Not all of those are positive, as some of the stuff we discussed. But really, I feel there's lots of books that have been written about some imperial bankers and hedge fund managers. But I wanted to write a story about how investing has evolved over a century through the prism of this unlikely hero, the index fund. That was like widely derided and laughed at and mocked and then later hated by all its kind of rivals. Yeah, I mean, like Mary said, I sometimes think in terms of films, like how this would be. And these are concepts. But the index fund is the hero of my story, the unlikely hero, the Hobbit. He's Frodo. But the broadest story is the Battle of Middle Earth or how investing has evolved over the past century. Excellent. And Robin, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? how insanely hard it is. I think people kind of appreciate, oh, that's really hard. I couldn't do that. Finance is complicated. And I think people even in the industry, oh, yes, it's very hard. Not everybody can be a Ken Griffin or whatever. I still think even people in the industry underestimate how diabolically difficult this is. I always say that I'm not a efficient markets jihadist. Like I'm not a gene farmer, proselyte. I don't think markets are efficient. I do think there are good, skilled investment managers that can beat markets over time and do add value and do an incredibly valuable job. But I think there are just way fewer of them than we appreciate. And it's way harder. And it's getting harder all the time. So most of my job consists of talking to people immensely more brilliant than I am. They've dedicated every iota of their being to trying to understand markets and finance and investing to do good by their jobs. These aren't feckless, useless people. They're really gifted women and men, but even they struggle. I see the data and I think that is what people need to realize, that this is just very, very hard. And sometimes even if you are successful, it's hard to know really, truly whether you are successful because you're good or just because you're lucky. Because there are tons of examples of people that did incredibly well for like 10, 15 years and then basically had their faces ripped off by markets and their careers ended in failure. So I guess like politicians, many investment careers sadly do end in tears. <laughs> I love that answer, by the way, because an answer we've also had to that question is how easy investing is. And when people are saying that, what they really mean is for the individual to go out and buy a fund like an index fund is actually much easier than it's commonly thought. You're obviously answering a slightly different question. I love the duality of it, of it both being underappreciated, how easy, yet also how hard investing is at the same time. It's quite a nice combination. Well, it's a great point, actually. I always think of it because I was here, especially these days where there's so many day trading going on and everybody who's like had a punt, some, some Tesla calls, fancies themselves the next King Griffin. But yes, actually, this is a golden era for investing in that you've never been able to buy more cheaply a broad, diversified pool of global securities and fixed income or equities. I mean, this is incredible, and it's just going to get better. Like The price of a lot of these index funds is close to zero, and it's going to go to zero across the board pretty much over the next 10 years, I suspect. But it's a bit like Warren Buffett always says, that investing is easy, but the discipline is hard. It's like dieting. It's not hard. You know how to lose weight. We just need to exercise more and eat more healthily. But it's really hard to do in practice. That's it. So I think with investing, that's the thing. Like It's easier than ever to buy a broad group of diversified funds and forgetting about it until retirement. But it's probably getting even harder to stay the course, as Bogle would have said, because of all the distractions, because of social media, because of, frankly, a lot of people on Wall Street and elsewhere that still desperately want to generate churn. 
because that's how they make money. I love that analogy to losing weight. It's so very easy, but also so very hard. It's hammered home after adding a few pounds during lockdown. That'll be easy. It's completely Yeah. Fine. Next week. Yeah. Diet starts next week. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Robin, before we let you go, do you have any recommendations for the listeners? We'll clearly be linking in the show notes to various things, including, of course, your book, if some listeners haven't read it yet. But anything else? Well, I mean, there's lots of great financial books. I mean, one of the books that I find, so I obviously read Greg Zuckerman, he's a friend of he's a brilliant writer and a brilliant journalist at the journal. So it's frenemy because obviously we hate the journal at the FT. <laughs> that was in my mind when I brought him up, by the way. I wasn't sure if that would be a compliment or that would be oh, an no, insult. Oh, no, that's a huge would... compliment. Greg is an incredible journalist. We all learn from people around us all the time, and he's one of the people I've learned from. I mean, Peter Bernstein, I still think is underrated, like a book and a classic case of like taking a story, for example, against the gods, his history of risk and how humans have kind of tackled risk as a mathematical concept up to the present day of finance, I think is just a stone cold classic. I still recommend to quite a lot of younger colleagues that maybe start covering finance that haven't covered markets or investing to read around the walk down Wall Street. It's still a classic. And there's a reason why it's on this 12th edition now or something like that podcasts some ex-colleagues of mine do something really interesting called the new bazaar covers economics knowing also frenemies at bloomberg do something called odd lots which is really good it's really eclectic but yeah god book recommendations are many i'm reading a book now on the history of basically finance as a sort of disruptive technology by will goatsman who's a professor at yale the name escapes me right now i think it's money solves this and it's slightly provocative because obviously people don't always think of think of finance and money as sort of a bogeyman, a villain in every sort of Hollywood story. But he makes a really cogent case for why financial innovation has actually been the secret glue that has kind of kept the world moving forward together. That we focus a lot on the technological innovations, but they are almost inevitably always made possible by financial innovation. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. You've rightly highlighted a few classics there. It's always easy to mention the book du jour sort of thing, but those Against the Gods and Random Walk Down Wall Street, those are absolute classics. Everyone should read them if they haven't. Great. Okay. Robin, it's been an absolutely fantastic conversation today. Thank you so much for your time. No, no. Thanks, Mary. Thanks, Dan. Really appreciate having me on. Great questions. It was fun to dig into my secret story of history as a war correspondent for all of three months. <laughs> Brilliant. Robin, thanks so much again. We've really enjoyed today's episode. Hope the listeners have too. That's it from us next week, but do join us again in a week's time for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.